Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. With me today are Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby. Wayne is the founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and chief lobbyist in D.C. You can read their complete extensive bios on our uh, website. So, uh, you know, we're still in, in the world, guys, where naturally every subject has a connection to the coronavirus. Uh, and animal welfare ties in particularly strongly because of the original suspicion that it originated in wet markets in China. Now, of course, um, I think the CDC is at least doing an obligatory bit of research on whether there may have been a laboratory connection. I don't, I haven't read anything uh, credible uh, from any serious journalists yet that suspect that it originated anywhere but in the biological world. Uh, but I've also heard that um, uh, it may not have gone straight from the bat to the pangolin, which we've heard quite a bit as the interstitial carrier of uh, the progress from the wild world to the human world, um, but but that perhaps it was even conveyed from bats uh, to dogs and uh, went from being inside the canine, uh, and then when the canine uh, interacts with a person, it may have come that way. Bottom line is that nobody knows. Uh, the good thing, though, and this is where I want to go right away to Marty Irby, who is our legislative liaison to all things D.C.-related, uh, is to talk about the silver lining uh, on this debate, and that is whether it exactly originated in the food markets or not, there is a strong move to pressure China and other countries, even I think the U.S. has some wet markets, uh, but to pressure these countries to make them a thing of the past. Marty, have I said all that right, and what's the latest on the Hill? Yes, Joe, thank you so much for having us on again today and being here and all the great work you do, and we've got a pretty good update. It's been really exciting over the past few weeks, even though we've all been uh, locked down at home. We've been tremendously busy uh, within the past two weeks, U.S. Senators Lindsey Graham and Cory Booker, along with 60 other lawmakers from both sides of the aisle in both chambers of Congress, sent a letter to the World Health Organization and the United Nations and a few other organizations calling for an end to these wet markets around the globe. Uh, in addition to that, this past week, Congressman Steve Shabbat, a Republican from Ohio, introduced a resolution in the U.S. House of Representatives also calling for a global ban on these wet markets. And just yesterday, Congressman Vern Buchanan and Congressman Alcee Hastings, a Republican and a Democrat from Florida, sent a letter to the president asking him to address this very issue with the president of China. So we are seeing a lot of momentum. I, I just can't tell you how many people have contacted us about this issue, reporters, uh, legislators out of the blue who had never even discussed this issue with us. So it's very hot. People are recognizing what has been caused uh, in our country by uh, the pandemic that we're all seeing and how that ties back to these wet markets in China. And all the evidence really points to those wet markets in Wuhan where this 
pandemic was bred. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we're also seeing um, a lot of discussions surrounding the dog meat trade in China. Back in 2018, you might recall that Wayne and myself and others worked very hard to pass a federal law banning dog and cat meat in the U.S., and that was signed into law in the Farm Bill of 2018. Now we're seeing, because of the tie with dog meat and those animals being raised and sold in live markets, uh, China actually has put out a proposal that would reclassify dogs as companion animals and take them off of the list of livestock that can be traded for meat. So we hope that all of these efforts uh, bear some great fruits and that we're really able to change the culture that has caused so much disease in this world. Also, very much on the mind of the world right now is the development of medicines and vaccines to help combat the coronavirus. The FDA, of course, uh, hopes to be and may emerge to be one of the world leaders in developing these medicines, having them approved. But the focus of our show today, as it relates to animal welfare, circles around to the requirement that medicines be tested on animals before they make their way to human trials. This is where I want to turn it over to to Wayne, and then we'll introduce our guest. Uh, but just for an update on what is the standard and how can the enforcement of the standard right now perhaps slow the development and rollout of of a drug to combat coronavirus. Wayne? Well, Joe, you know, this whole discussion, it's amazing as you set this up and you talk about the wet markets and how the interface between wild animals and people in these uh, live wildlife markets incubated this disease. And uh, it, it appears, again, as you said, that it's, it's the very likely source. But even if it is not, there have been so many other cases where our mistreatment of wildlife produced a, a deadly virus. And <clears throat> animals, as I've said in, in so many circumstances, are at the center of the human experience. Uh, they're at the center of this current uh, discussion, debate, crisis that we're having right now. Uh, not just, as you said, uh, in terms of the origin, but now the development of, of a treatment for it. And it's really important that our listeners understand that animals have been used as test subjects by many industries. Uh, they've been used in the cosmetics industry. They've been used in the pesticide industry, the chemicals industry. They're tested to determine the toxicity of products, the safety of drugs, the efficacy of drugs. And the Food and Drug Administration has been the regulatory agency in the United States government that regulates the the sale of drugs into the marketplace. And it's supposed to protect us. If you use a drug, you're not supposed to get killed by taking the drug to treat a chronic condition or a disease or whatever it may be. So the FDA has set up testing standards for the government as well as for private industry to govern the way that it develops and then allows um, drug developers to sell drugs to consumers in the United States and, and abroad. And animals have been at the center of this, that FDA has required the use of animals right from the get-go when you start the drug development process. And 
it has incredibly slowed the process of drug development. And it has also sent us in the wrong direction. It typically costs, as, as Tammy Drake will tell us, our, our guest today, uh, it can take 10 years for a drug to come to market. And it costs the pharmaceutical company a billion dollars to develop it. And the animals are not an effective strategy for a test subject or model in most cases. And uh, this is really uh, a part of this larger COVID-19 debate that really needs to be amplified. Should we be holding on to this requirement for rodent tests and non-rodent animal tests when it sends us in the wrong direction and slows us down when we need a vaccine to, to stop the progress of this virus all over the world it's upended our economy. And is it going to be developed in one month, five months, 10 months, two years? Never. And what role do animals play in, in slowing this down? And that's really what I'm, I'm glad that, Joe, you've assembled us today to talk about this problem. You know, it, it's, it's fascinating. And the science is deep. Uh, the ethics are deep. And I think we have someone very expert to discuss those issues with us. She is Tammy Drake, the Director of Research and Regulatory Policy at the Center for Responsible Science. There, she coordinates research regarding regulatory testing methods for new product development, monitors agency rulemaking changes, and drafts guidance policies. She has pushed for more human-relevant test methods and contributed to alternatives to laboratory animals, the Food and Drug and Law Institute Policy Forum, as well as a recent book, Animal Experimentation, Working Towards a Paradigm Change. You know, when, um, Tammy, so glad you're here. Thank you. Let me welcome you first. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the things that I found it very difficult to explain to people when I first became active in animal welfare advocacy is the matter that animal testing is something that needs to go. We have images, I think many people do, when we talk about helping animals escape the torture, the, the, the processes that they're uh, expected to endure in laboratory environments. We think of those, uh, but then we, at least I did, even before I got into this, you know, we imagine a child in a hospital bed needing a medicine. We imagine our parents needing a medicine. And how in the world can we possibly say that our children, our grandparents, ourselves, ought to be subject to increased medical precarity if alleviating that takes only some animal testing. But one of the things I, I learned researching this is that adverse reactions to drugs are the fourth leading cause of death in the United States. 128,000 people die of adverse medicine reactions. So we're doing all of this testing on animals. It doesn't seem to do what it's supposed to do. Uh, and my question to you is, is this a paradigm that in fact has, has met its time to end. I hope so. And um, first I'll say, working with the Center for Responsible Science, we've focused on the fact that the current preclinical testing model can be dangerous, even deadly for humans. And there's been a lot of research and, you know, of course, there isn't a lot of transparency in what's happening with animal testing. You can 
go back and look at approved, once they're approved by the FDA, you can look at what kind of testing they did. A lot of really smart people have been doing systematic reviews of approved drugs that have had subsequent adverse reactions in humans, and they look back to see if the animal data showed that same adverse reaction in humans. And, you know, it, it didn't happen. It does sometimes, and sometimes when a drug will show toxicity in animals, it may show toxicity in humans, but there's no reliability. The problem is when an animal test shows no toxicity in humans, it provides nearly no insight into the possibility of absence of toxicity in humans. Uh, so, Tammy, uh, what does the math look like when we compare the percentage of adverse reactions that are found in animals that also show up in humans? How effective is this testing paradigm? Well, according to a recent study, it showed that 63% of adverse drug reactions in humans had no counterpart in animals, and less than 20% had a positive corollary in animals. So why then do we hold on to it? It, it seems to me a no-brainer that things have got to change. Has it been uh, the perhaps that we've not had anything that's any better, but I suspect that's changing. What's, why are we doing this still? It's, it's definitely changing. Um, there are human-relevant test methods, which we can discuss organ-on-a-chip models, human-on-a-chip models, um, many different human-relevant test methods, which is important. We want to focus on human biology if we're trying to find out if a drug is safe or effective in a human. The problem is the regulations in place right now with regard to new drugs and vaccines are 83 years old. They haven't changed. They require animal testing prior to clinical trials in humans. These testing requirements date back to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, which was passed in 1938. And it's interesting because that language was put into the Federal Food, Drugs, and Cosmetics Act by a proponent of animal testing without basis on any evidence that the requirement would improve safety or efficacy. And all you have to do is look at how well drug development is doing. And for years and years, we have a 90% failure rate of drugs that enter human clinical trials. They aren't approved. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that animal tests aren't always, they can be at times, but aren't always good predictors of human response. What's happening is these drugs are going into clinical trials. They're failing in clinical trials. This drives up the cost. It takes an average of 10 years to bring a new drug to market. And if you factor in the cost of the clinical failures or withdrawn drugs, the cost is an average of around $4 billion and could reach as high as $12 billion. And we know that cost is passed on to consumers. That's a big problem, high drug prices, but we're now in the biggest pandemic we've seen. We're in a hurry. We can't afford the time it takes to use models that aren't predictive of human response. What would the elimination of animal testing 
do, for example, to that 90% rejection rate of applied for FDA approval? What would it do for the 10-year time window? Well, I've never looked at, at an actual projection and model, and I, and I do have to say animal tests will not be eliminated outright. It's going to be a stepwise process to introduce the human relevant, which many of them exist already. But it would be much quicker, cheaper for drug developers to use the non-animal human relevant tests. And you're going to get better results in clinical trials, so you're not going to have the clinical trial failure, so you're probably going to cut it in half. Well, it seems like a no-brainer then. Um, what? Why yeah, would... Joe, it's, it's Wayne. I want to interject. You know, we we expect rational decision-making when we're presented with a set of facts. And these facts indicate that animals slow down drug development. They send drug development in, in the, down the wrong path often, and they're enormously expensive. You would think with the availability, as Tammy indicated, of human-relevant testing methods that are more reliable, faster, cheaper, that the regulatory system and the private industries that are covered by that regulatory framework would all rush in this direction. I've learned through the years in working in Washington, D.C., that uh, perfect rationality is, is not the way things play out. And I, I remember, you know, from the history books when Dwight David Eisenhower, our president for most of the 1950s, himself a general, you know, who, who was instrumental in our winning World War II, warned people about the military-industrial complex. And I think that there's, you know, a, a, a pharmaceutical um, complex and a lab animal breeding complex that's slowing this down. I think a lot of people are steeped in this method. A lot of the scientists are trained in laboratory animal use, and they're less familiar with the newer strategies and new technologies. I also think that there are a lot of commercial forces that want this to stay this way, like Charles River, uh, which is a major uh, breeding laboratory for animals, Covance, others that are in this business. And I think that, you know, in the broadest sense, while we look at our history as as Americans and we see incredible change in the realms of transportation, um, telecommunications, computing, you know, so many different areas, you know, uh, we think, oh, my God, you know, we're not the same society now that we were 70 years ago. I mean, when you think about early vehicles versus electric vehicles and so many things, but it, but people get into a rut, and I think we're in a rut on this, and what we're asking people to do is look at the data, look at the expense, look at the number of people dying because they're not getting treatments because we're stuck in this regulatory framework that is more a check-the-box framework than it is an actual you know, health delivery. A drug development program. So I, I don't know, Tammy, if you disagree with me or agree with me or want to expound on that, but I, I think this is a classic case of irrational behavior. 
Exactly, Wayne. I mean, there's a lot of self-imposed barriers of all the stakeholders. And like you said, people with vested interests, the contract research organizations, lab animal, animal breeding enterprises, they're really entrenched views. Um, people who've been doing animal testing, it's the only thing they know. They've always done it this way. Sometimes they're complacent. They're skeptic. They're not sure if this will work. The FDA needs to encourage the use of modern technology. And in fact, you know, they, they are working, they are collaborating with some of the biotech companies that are developing these models. They've actually put together their own roadmap for predictive toxicology, but it's, it's bureaucratic red tape and it's not moving fast enough. And why can't we, especially in this pandemic, and when they tell you we're going to have a vaccine in a year or two, that's absolutely not going to happen. I hope it does. I hope I'm wrong. The average length of time it takes to develop a vaccine is seven and a half years. Um, a report came out by a company that uses machine learning to forecast the probability of success for drug candidates in clinical trials, and they looked at Two vaccines that are currently in clinical trials. One is Moderna, which we've all heard about that started clinical trials last month before doing preclinical animal tests. And their analytics says they have a 5% chance of success and it'll take 5.2 years. The other one has a 15% chance and will take five and a half years. Why the FDA isn't pushing for everyone to get together and let's use better tools because the FDA, especially for vaccines, they look, they want long-term safety data for vaccines, way more than for drugs, regular drugs, treatments, which right now they are using repurposed drugs, off-label use. There are some good candidates that have already gone through preclinical testing. They're in clinical trials and maybe in two years they'll be approved for wider use. They're using it on very sick people right now that currently have COVID. But the problem is they're telling, not the FDA, but I'm hearing it on the news daily that we're going to have a vaccine maybe in a year and a half. And it just doesn't make any sense. The shortest time it ever took for a vaccine was a long time ago, and it took four years for rabies. And this isn't going to go away until we have a vaccine. So we have to have public-private partnerships to work together to spark this innovation. But the FDA has to lift these regulatory burdens that make no sense and slow everything down. Well, Tammy, you told, you told me, again, this is Wayne, that there was never a vaccine developed for SARS which became an epidemic. And they're using the same, that's why Moderna went into clinical trials without preclinical tests because they'd already done them for SARS and they they never developed a vaccine. And they're using the same technology and I have to say this technology, they say they've proven it in animals, which efficacy models. We've been curing cancer in transgenic mice for 20 years. It's never translated to humans. 
Well, we have a president, lo- love him or hate him, and I'm sure many of our listeners have have are, are on one side of the fence or another, who's generally regarded by everybody as a pretty impatient person, right? He wants to open up the country again, he says, in terms of the economy, and he he wants to get things moving. I, you know, I, I wonder if he learns about these FDA requirements, it, it would would he stand for it? Would any president who wants to get action, because there's some notion, it seems almost an assumption that we are going to develop a vaccine, that it's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. But if people really knew the failure rates here and how long it takes, would we be talking the way we are about vaccine development for COVID-19? I'm not sure. You make a really good point, and I think it's important that somebody takes some kind of action. And I think I need to be really crystal clear here. When we say, okay, the animal tests aren't working, we still have to conduct safety, efficacy tests, and that kind of stuff. We just need to do it in a human-relevant, non-animal model made of human cells. Yeah, so talk about the alternative uh, sciences here, uh, Tammy, please. You mentioned organ on a chip, human on a chip. Uh, What does this look like? It's really interesting if you could actually see them. And they've been—actually, it started with DARPA years ago because they— have to test and develop drugs or antidotes to biological weapons and that kind of stuff where you can't ethically test in humans. And they were understanding that they tested a lot in non-human primates and they weren't getting the human relevant results they needed. And they started a program years ago with many collaborators, um, private, public, Many universities, FDA was involved, and it was called the Microphysiological Systems Program. Human organs on a chip, microfluidic cells that mimic human anatomy with human cells and tissue. They actually have a human lung on a chip that actually, it breathes, it moves. It's lined with all the lung cells and everything else. They can inject, for instance, this institute has developed a COVID disease model chip that can infect the lung chip, which would help them with testing a drug for efficacy. So the idea behind you've got different organs, you've got a gut on a chip, neuro on a chip, heart on a chip, liver on a chip, kidney on a chip, and they want to put one big microphysiological system together so it works together like a living being, because many of the arguments made for in vitro testing is, you know, by the people who are proponents of animal tests, they need to see it in a living system that functions together, not just pieces of it. So this human on a chip, which has so much promise, and I know that FDA has worked on it, but where are they in this and why aren't they pushing it now? And I want to help our listeners understand, and, and me too, frankly, uh, what you mean by on a chip and being able to infect that it breathes. Are, are these living? It's actually. Yeah. So I, is, I is I this all digital? Is it, it's a small um, chip. It looks like a computer chip, and it has living cells. It has blood. It has all of that. It's on a, a micro scale. 
It's very sciencey. I'm not a scientist, but I'm fascinated by it. And I would suggest to anyone to look up Beast Institute and Don Ingber, and they have wonderful videos about this. But they are looking at using these models not only for safety, drug safety testing, but for efficacy testing as well. They can create disease models. Like I said, the lung on a chip, they can infect with the COVID model, disease model. You know, they're at that stage, and I know they're working on looking at repurposing FDA-approved drugs using that technology, but it needs to be ramped up. I mean, there are billions and billions of dollars being put into ramping up for vaccines, and especially vaccine manufacturing takes forever, and there's a lot of testing, batch testing involved. So they're putting the billions of dollars to ramp up manufacturing for a vaccine that may not happen. What does it look like when we test drugs on animals? What kinds of animals are used? What kinds of things do they experience? Um, what does that world look like, Wayne? Well, you know, it depends. It depends what the protocol calls for and and asks for. But you know, it's everything from from transgenic uh, mice and other rodents, you know, to cats, dogs, primates. Um, you know, I've been involved in a number of, of big debates on this subject. I mean, mercifully, um, you know, we are we are soon, I think, to get past the idea of using animals for cosmetic testing uh, because we have alternatives or we know that there are safe products that are used, but there you're you know, you're measuring eye irritancy or you're measuring, measuring toxicity. So you're almost, you know, you're poisoning the animals. And we've heard of, of tests like the lethal dose 50 where half the subjects are killed when you give them a dose of a, of a certain product at a certain concentration or volume. And, you know, Tammy has pointed out to me that even for drug development where you're not measuring uh, toxicity of the eye or some other part, skin irritancy tests, they even use some of those experiments for drug testing. So I, I think, you know, it, it really depends on Tammy. I mean, I guess in the, in the realm of drugs to, to treat so many animal conditions as, but mainly human conditions. I mean, we do all sorts of things to all sorts of species. Uh, is there a way for for you to characterize uh, that work in terms of what happens to the animals? Well, in the drug development space, they're looking at safety pharmacology. When they start, they're not looking to see if a drug is safe. They want to see if it's unsafe. And they use both animals and in vitro in that. And then they move into looking at toxicokinetics, which is how a substance gets into the body and what happens to it in the body. But they use toxic doses to determine a clinical margin of safety. Toxic doses means they kill them. So that's 14 days. Then they do other testing like acute single-dose toxicity studies, and this is trying to figure out what dose is okay um, they're looking at what they call NOEL, which is a no-observed adverse effect level. And then they look at toxic doses. These studies are designed to measure whether a drug is going to cause harm or death within weeks of a single brief exposure. And 
if they do it in a rodent, they do it in a non-rodent, and it's interesting. You take a rodent, then you have to determine a human dose from that, and they extrapolate by weight, so it's interesting. Um, they do repeat dose toxicity studies because they're looking at how long is a person going to take this drug? How long is a clinical trial going to last? That determines how long these studies have to go. For instance, if you have a phase one clinical trial that lasts 12 months, you have to do a, a dog study for 12 months and a rat study for 12 months. And then you get into reprotoxicity studies and it's generations of animals and each of these tests use like 3,000 rats and 900 rabbits. And then other things they're looking for, of course, carcinogenicity. Is this going to cause cancer? And it lasts a long time and it uses a lot of animals. It can last two years. And large amounts of rats and transgenic mice but it's really hard to know how many animals are actually used in drug development. You know, animal use has to be reported under the AWA and everything else, but it's not broken down by industry. But we do know that approximately 80% of all animal testing is used for pharmaceutical testing. And, and let me just add, Joe, there's a lot of information that's packed in there from from Tammy, and when she says AWA, she's not meaning Animal Wellness Action, but she's meaning the Animal <laughs> Welfare Act. Sorry. And and the situation with animals is so complex, it's quite hidden. But I, I want to just go back to the big picture uh, again as well. That when we see these ads on television for for many of these drugs that are that are being sold commercially, and they list the side effects. It's not as if this existing process, as elaborate and time-consuming as, as Tammy has detailed, necessarily protects us. I mean, people take drugs and people die from taking these drugs all the time. There are adverse effects that diminish our quality of life. So again, I'm for safety testing. I think we should have a rigorous scientific program for safety testing and efficacy testing to test that the drug actually works in the way that it's supposed to in relieving a condition or curing a problem. But this system is is so poor at this point that we have a tremendous number of people who suffer as a consequence of taking the drugs. And Tammy, I hate to keep throwing it back at you, but I mean, you've got some big picture numbers on that, don't you? About About what the human consequences of a system that's grounded on using animals for human conditions really produces? Well, yes. I mean, we've got the, the situation with adverse events to drugs taken as prescribed. It's not somebody taking too much of it or something like that. It's the fourth leading cause of death in the U.S. Almost 2 million hospitalizations a year. And then you also have to remember clinical trial volunteers who enter non-cancer phase one preclinical trials are entering those trials based on animal data, period. We've kind of uncovered in the last couple of years, there's no transparency regarding how many people die in clinical trials. You can only find it in SEC filings because drug sponsors have to report it to their investors. Um, we found by looking at SEC filings over a period of four years, 
200 treatment-related deaths in clinical trials. Now, people die in clinical trials because of disease progression, that kind of thing. This isn't that. This is the drug that they're testing killing them. Now, we believe that that number, that 200 number, is exponentially higher. FDA is not required when they find out about someone dying from a toxic drug in a clinical trial, they do not make that public. They are prevented from doing so because it's considered a trade secret for the pharmaceutical company. So here we go. It's dollars over humans. It's a problem. I was reading a piece of literature put out by the Center for a Humane Economy, and I want to ask you about that, Tammy, because I believe your group's partnering with them, talking about the drug Vioxx that came out as early as 2004, uh, or that's when it was withdrawn from the market. Six different animal studies showed that Vioxx was actually protective against heart attacks and vascular disease, but lo and behold, among humans, it caused about 320,000 heart attacks, 140,000 of them fatal. And that, I think, is, is, is to me just an excellent example of how we can have animal tests say, not only is this okay, it's good for the heart, and, and then you have over a quarter of a million people have, have heart attacks. It's very, very disturbing. What you said just, I think that's probably what I'm going to remember most from this, is that it's a trade secret. It's almost like the formula for Coke. You know, it's a trade secret. We can't tell you how many people we killed uh, in order to get this this drug to you. That's a trade secret. Uh, let me pivot to ask you, please, about your partnership with the Center for a Humane Economy. What's that work going to look like, and where are you with it? We're really excited about it. And um, Center for Responsible Science has, we've been around since 2012, and we are laser focused on this issue. We don't look at EPA testing, cosmetics testing. We're looking at FDA-regulated testing for drugs and devices. I think the talent coming from the Center for a Humane Economy is really going to kick this into overdrive. We've worked really hard. We've done the Administrative Procedures Act due diligence. We've petitioned FDA with co-petitioners to change the regulations. We've submitted three citizens' petitions. That's how you have to ask the FDA to do something. You can't sue the FDA. You have to do this, and then they tell you if they're going to or if they're not going to. And with Wayne's expertise, and his team's expertise, I think we can get more attention and more movement. And it really has to happen. And I think legislative support is so important. This has to be changed. And the biggest wake-up call landed in our laps, and it's COVID-19. And I think with the teams working together, we're going to get this out more broadly and really bring a lot more stakeholders in. And, and th thank you, Tammy, for, for saying all that. And I just want to underscore, Joe, that you know we're in a crisis situation. People are dying every day. People are getting sick. And the governments of the world have taken unprecedented social distancing steps, which have really radically reduced the amount of economic activity in the world. I mean, this is an extraordinary circumstance. And social distancing can only get you so far. A vaccine is the way to, to really address this issue, kind of like we dealt with smallpox or polio. 
and they remain issues, but the vaccine development was crucial in arresting the progress of these deadly diseases. This system is now built to fail. FDA requires drug makers to jump through so many hoops that take so long. So when you have an emerging infectious disease and you have this incredibly burdensome, uh, very uh, long drawn out regulatory framework that you've got to contend with, it's just not, it's just not a match for what the world needs to do when you have a crisis like this. So when Tammy says something's been, you know, that this circumstance really is an opportunity for reform, I agree. We cannot wait this long. We've got to have the best science. But I think what's, what the Center for Responsible Science has been saying is, you know, they may or may not have strong views about animal testing from a moral perspective, but they're saying from a scientific perspective, we should be using the best science. We shouldn't be obligated to use animals when they can't even get the disease, when they're not good models. And when we've got alternatives that are human-based models, like an organ-on-a-chip program that can be very crucial and work very efficiently and effectively to get us where we need to be in terms of drug development. Marty, um, I come to you with all things legislative. What is your perception of how how the House and Senate writ large, and I know this is gosh, maybe an impossible question, but do you get a sense that there is anything like an appetite for reform in this area in your conversations with people? Well, it's interesting you ask that. I haven't had any direct conversations with legislators about this particular topic with the FDA, but back six or seven years ago, the very first bill that I worked on and got passed through Congress and signed into law was the Sunscreen Innovation Act. And it was a bill that called for FDA to speed up their approval of sunscreen ingredients because so many people were getting cancer. And at that time, and I know since then, there have been a number of members of Congress who really want to push on FDA to speed up things across the board in all areas and eliminate a lot of the different types of testing and policies that they're currently utilizing. So I do think there probably would be an appetite just knowing from that past experience. I want to say, Joe, that, you know, the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, Anthony Fauci, who's been, you know, the medical face of so much of the communication strategies on this issue and promoting social distancing, you know, the director of the infectious diseases program at NIH, he was very, very severely criticized by AIDS activists who felt like, you know, family members, friends were dying uh, while, you know, the government and its research programs were checking boxes. And he said at some point, you know, it was the activist that changed his mindset, that he was he was viewed as evil and he was viewed as the impediment. But he realized that the government needed to do something differently. And that's when some of the work in terms of AIDS research and, and treating AIDS turned around. And uh, we need that sort of turnaround among scientists within within the universe of, of drug makers. And we need to get the pharmaceutical companies and the FDA and uh, so many of the other players in the research field to recognize that, you know, we need to we need to get something done quick and we need the best science and we shouldn't be bound by these by these archaic rules that have been around for 70 or 80 years 
and have sent us down the wrong path in so many cases. Yeah, there's a terrific article in the current New York um, Style magazine that looks at some of the founders of ACT UP and how they pivoted from uh, the grassroots demonstrations that were so, in, in the characterization of many outlandish, to actually getting in there and partnering and being a part of the solution. So as the ACT UP anniversary comes about, Dr. Fauci is mentioned in the story, and that that's what it takes sometimes. And, and perhaps not only when we look at the slow pace of medical uh, advances owing to these FDA strictures, but as we look at issues regarding income inequality, uh, national health care, it'll be really interesting to see what evolutions, if not revolutions, are fomented by this crisis. Uh, I'd like to be optimistic, and uh, but I have to say I'm not, I'm not terribly. Tammy, I'll turn it over to you uh, for final thoughts. I think the most important thing is knowing the crisis we're in and what Wayne was talking about. It's a global crisis. It's an economic crisis. It's the worst thing we've faced. And as the experts say, it's not over until we have a vaccine. That's not going to happen quickly. So what needs to happen, we have to do what we can do, and that's get the FDA to change their regulations, change the definition of preclinical testing to be the test that is most predictive of human response. And we need to get a public-private partnership, all the scientists together, and to start using and tweaking. And if they can't find a human-relevant model for a specific need they have, let's create it. Let's have a Manhattan Project. It can be done, and it can be done a lot quicker than waiting 5 to 15 years for a vaccine that may not happen. How can our listeners help you help the cause? What's the action we can take on this end of the microphone? I think what people really need to do is educate themselves and educate others about the failings of the current drug development paradigm and that our lives, possibly our existence, is at stake now. I don't want to encourage a letter-writing campaign to the FDA right now. I think that would be counterproductive to our efforts. But stay tuned. There will be things that we will be asking people to do. Yeah, and I want to say, Joe, I think people should be writing to their senators and representatives about having a science-based drug development process that really brings the urgency needed to the current crisis that we're dealing with. And the FDA is probably not going to be the solution. Congress is going to be the solution on this. I agree. You know, we, this is our 12th episode, but I think the topic today, the issue you bring up, uh, Tammy, is by far the most impactful. So I'm really grateful you took time out in what I'm sure is a very busy time for you uh, to come visit with us. If people want to learn more about the Center for Responsible Science, they can go to CRS501. Dot org. What's the 501 for in your URL? I don't know. It's a mystery. I didn't set up the website. All right. Well, the next time you're on with us, we, we got to know what the 501 is. I so. don't believe it has significance, maybe to the person who set it up. Yeah, we'll talk maybe, about that later, Wayne. <laughs> and maybe, 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 Joe, we want to send them all through to the Center for Humane Economy so they can sign up to get involved so we can we can then 
you know, push people to support a new bill that we're, we're going to be working on introducing, which would require FDA to revamp its drug approval process to include the best science and not to mandate the use of animals. All right, good. So um, if you're listening to this, go to crs501.org, Google the Center for a Humane Economy. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. I've been your host, Joseph Grove. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org to find out about all of our legislative efforts, subscribe to our newsletters, and link up with our social media channels. Want to subscribe to this podcast? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and we'll be back real soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.